Good evening to you all. Can you hear in the back? So tonight I'm going to talk about uh, the problem with greed. So in order to frame this conversation, I'll make a few preliminary remarks about uh, where it fits in the Buddha's uh, framework of understanding. So if you consider the second noble truth, which is there is a cause for suffering, you can appreciate that the Buddha devoted his entire search to figuring out what caused suffering and how to release it, how to undo it. He kind of entered into an exploration of what went into its genesis and maintenance, and then by understanding how it was caused, by implication being able to see you know, what, the, what the underpinnings of that were and how they could be removed, how it could be undone. And he locates the primary source of suffering as being within our own mind stream, in the proclivity of the untrained mind towards certain unskillful ways of understanding reality. And these particular kinds of conditioned patterns of relating to things in a distorted way are called kalesas in Pali, usually translated as defilements of mind. And this refers to certain mental states that are frequently present, although not intrinsic to us. And the most basic of these are the the triad of um, greed, aversion, and delusion. And we're really going to be centering on this quality of greed, also called loba in Pali. And... In order to define it first, I'll take a definition from Bhikkhu Bodhi, who summarizes it as, greed is self-centered desire, the desire for pleasure and possessions, the urge to bolster the sense of ego with power, status, and prestige. And there are other particular words that are used as synonyms for this state of mind, including tanha, craving, thirsting, and attachment. So what's being talked about is wanting of a particular kind, which comes from and is intermixed with ignorance. And the Buddha says that really the root of all defilements of mind, what holds them in place is avijja, this ignorance, this not understanding reality and operating at variance to it. And when he's talking about ignorance, he's not just talking about kind of like a lack of... uh, knowledge or, you know, some missing bits of information. He's talking about about something that's much more fundamental, a kind of active misunderstanding of what's going on, a kind of shrouding of the mind where things are obscured or even actively misunderstood on a very elemental kind of level. In other words, erroneous perceptions, conceptions, and ideas that nurture defilements. And an area where this ignorance, this delusion, is particularly strong and deep is in relationship to sense pleasures. 
it's deep in relationship to how we understand them, how we value them, and how we work with them or don't work with them. And I was thinking about this uh, recently when I was watching this old movie called Wall Street. Anybody ever see this? And there's a main character in it called uh, Gordon Gecko, who's kind of the personification of the, you know, go, 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 get it, get it, get it, get, get the money, get the, um, you know, get the deal, get the wealth at all costs. And his slogan in the movie is, greed is good. Greed is good, you know, that's his motto. But the Buddha would say, uh, not really. <laughs> so he would say, it's a suffering state. It arises from ignorance and leads us in the direction of further suffering. It's not skillful. And following the promptings of greed is not in our best interests. You know, the Buddha's way, his whole path is called the middle way because it avoids two extremes. And the two extremes are two misguided attempts to gain relief from suffering by employing particular strategies. And the first misguided strategy is the one of indulgence in the pursuit of sense desires. And the other one, the correlate, of course, is, is the opposite, which is the indulgence in the practice of self-mortification or self-torture with the idea of finding liberation. So in defining the middle path as one that sees the indulgence and sense desire as problematic and uh, a bad strategy, the Buddha is basically clear that ignorance around sense desires is part of how we misperceive things and part of how we go wrong, how we come away from contact with reality. And in fact, he saw it as being so key to awakening that he often discussed his own awakening, his own waking up, his own enlightenment, in terms of coming to clarity about this particular point. He would talk about it in these kinds of terms. So long, monks, as I did not directly know, as they really are, the gratification in the world is gratification. Its danger is danger, and the escape from the world is escape. For so long, I did not claim to have awakened to the unsurpassed perfect enlightenment. But when I directly knew all of this, Then I claim to have awakened to the unsurpassed perfect enlightenment in this world. The knowledge and vision arose in me. Unshakable is the liberation of my mind. And so there's something about coming to clarification on this point related to sense desires that seems to be a key or a linchpin, which if removed can cause the whole edifice of suffering to crumble. But to say something about the Buddha in his own life as as, uh, a bit of a background here can help you you fill in uh, your understanding of exactly how he came to understand the limitations of sense desire. 
And when you look at his life, you can see that um, when we say the Buddha investigated the gratification of sense desires, we know he did a very thorough job. You know, because if you look at the earlier part of his life where he was, you know, a, a prince, and you look at how he describes what his life was like, you kind of get an idea of, you know, where he was coming from uh, when he went off on his quest. So this is how he describes his, his early life. Formerly, when I lived the household life, I enjoyed myself, provided and endowed with the five cords of sensual pleasure, with forms cognizable by the eye, with sounds cognizable by the tongue, with odors cognizable by the nose, with flavors cognizable by the tongue, with tactile objects cognizable by the body that are wished for, desired, agreeable, and likable, connected with sensual desire and provocative of lust. I had three palaces, one for the rainy season, one for the winter, and one for the summer. I lived in the rain's palace of the four months of the rainy season, enjoying myself with the musicians, none male, and I did not go down to the lower palace. Okay. <laughs> All right. He's the only guy in the palace. All right. So, and yet, when he, after he set off on his exploration and came to his understanding, he gives a very different description of things. He talks about how he came to a very different relationship with sense desire, and he says, on a later occasion, having understood as they really are the origin, the passing away, the gratification, the danger and the escape in the case of the sensual pleasures, I abandoned craving for sensual pleasures, I removed the fever of sensual pleasures, and I dwell without thirst with the mind inwardly at peace. I see other people who are not free from lust for sensual pleasures being devoured by craving for them, and I do not envy them, nor do I delight therein. Why is that? Because there is a delight apart from sensual pleasures, apart from unwholesome states, which surpasses even bliss. Since I take delight in that, I do not envy what is inferior, nor do I delight therein. So in other words, part of what he's saying here is he found something better. So then the question is, well, what did the Buddha come to see and to understand that led to this shift in view? How and why did he go about from being immersed in sense pleasures to seeing them as limitations to happiness when attachment is present? So in a sense, of course, part of what happened was the fateful trip outside the palace and its sobering effect. Suddenly, uh, suffering became real to him, and the realization launched a search for a cure for it. And as he says, you know, once he saw, once he really saw old age, sickness, and death, he sobered up. And the, the quote that he uses when he talks about this, uh, I find really touching because he says repeatedly in respect to old age, sickness, and death, suddenly the vanity of youth entirely left me. 
So all his previous experiences of pleasure and his imagined future experiences of it just didn't seem to do it for him anymore. And so as the bodhisattva's mind then turned towards his mission, which was to find out exactly how happiness, safety, and well-being could be reliably established. And this is what he says about his search. O monks, I set out seeking the gratification in the world. Whatever gratification there is in the world, that I have found. I have clearly seen with wisdom just how far the gratification in the world extends. So he doesn't say there isn't any. He says he's come to clarity about just how far the gratification in the world extends. And the the next statement is, I set out seeking the danger in the world. Whatever danger there is in the world, that I have found. I have clearly seen with wisdom just how far the danger of the world extends. I set out seeking an escape from the world meaning the cycle of samsaric suffering. Whatever escape there is from the world, that I have found. I've clearly seen with wisdom just how far the escape from the world extends. So then the question is, well, what exactly did he find out about sense pleasure? If you were going to put it in a sentence or two, what would that be? He found out that in and of itself, it's not a reliable guide or a reliable goal on the way to liberation. And if we take it to be so, we will actually become more ensnared in suffering and delusion. So I'll say it again. And this is my, my summary of his, his learning, my words. That in and of itself, it is not a reliable guide or a reliable goal on the way to liberation. And if we take it to be so, we'll actually become more ensnared in suffering and delusion. But it's important to acknowledge that the Buddha started out the same way as the rest of us do. And the most common way that we as human beings proceed is to use pleasure as a kind of... uh, Lodestar, you know, the measure of things which are worthwhile, the, the compass to follow. And there's a kind of biological basis to this, as there is to, you know, uh, other things. You know, it's partly instinctual. So, for instance, if you consider the case of a newborn baby, you know, it's the instinct of the baby to seek the mother's breast, you know, the pleasure of of feeding. It's the instinct of the mother, most often, to experience pleasure in providing uh, for the child in the form of nursing. You know, it works in its own terms, right? It's functional. So pleasure is a guide to some of what we need biologically. But even when you consider it from a biological perspective, you can see that it's unreliable as the sole measure there. Consider the consequences, for instance, of always following without hesitation the pleasant taste of sugar, right? We find sugar pleasant, most of us, sweet. 
The primates do too, you know. They like their bananas. But, you know, what if we always followed sweet? You know, or what if we uh, always followed the pleasant sensations that arise, you know, when somebody with a nice behind passes us on the street? Yeah? So you can see that uh, kind of clear comprehension and, you know, the ability to to say no to the automatic pursuit of pleasant is essential if we're going to be able to function above the level of automaticity or stimulus response. But this generalized tendency towards the pursuit of what's pleasant is very strong. And if we follow this as the primary marker, it leads us into a seriously disadvantageous direction into more and more craving. And this is because we don't see the limitations, the inaccuracy, the distortions that are built into the process. In other words, we don't see the delusion that's present as part of this, this whole syndrome. And our mind tends to go right from the experience of pleasant into craving and attachment to the object associated with the sensation. And this is uh, probably the most common form that um, craving takes, which is attachment to pleasant sensations and to, and to objects. There is this link between what is pleasant and the arising of craving and thirst for the object. And that link is the presence of ignorance or delusion, which reacts to feeling tone, the feeling tone of pleasant, in a deeply conditioned way by trying to hold on to it. So what's interesting about this is that when this is pointed out, as I'm pointing it out to you now, you know, the intellect can see the point that's being made. And yet until we deeply investigate Vedana, which is this whole area of feeling tone, and the conditioned arising of suffering, we fall into craving for the pleasant again and again. Because let's admit it, you know, in our minds the ideal life would be one pleasant thing after another, right? We'd front load the what's pleasant, we'd avoid the unpleasant, and we'd keep this situation permanent and hopefully continuously improving. I, I can remember once being on retreat and, and Ruth Dennison was kind of talking about this point and she told this story of um, um, being in the States, um, I think probably out near Damadina, her, her retreat place, and seeing uh, some people on vacation and they had an RV recreational vehicle with kayaks on the top, right? pulling a horse trailer, which was also pulling a trailer with dirt bikes on it. Right? So they were intending on really having a vacation, right? <laughs> and you know, who knows what they had, had tucked away <laughs> inside. You know, permanent pleasant, more and more of it. You know, you can never have too much of this kind of thing. And, you know, on a deep level, this is what we all want. I mean, if we could. But, of course, it's not possible. And, you know, when I say, of course, that doesn't mean we aren't conditioned to keep trying. 
So it can be helpful as a strategy to become conscious of why getting things pleasant and keeping them that way won't work. Right? To bring kind of the higher function, reasoning function and observation functions of the mind into this. Okay, here are some problems with using pleasant as the sole marker of how we should proceed. Number one, impermanence. So pleasure wears out, it habituates, and, and diminishes, right? This is the, the second bottle of champagne uh, image, right? <laughs> I don't know about you, but I've certainly had the experience of you know being at a dinner party or something, or on New Year's, and having with a friend or fr- friends you know, a bottle of champagne. And the first bottle is great. And in fact, it's so great that somebody gets the idea like, that's so good, I want some more. Let me go out to the store and I'll go get another bottle. And that second bottle, you know, that second bottle is not what the first bottle was, right? The next morning, the second bottle can be quite a problem. So not only does, does pleasure diminish, but you know, it actually goes away completely at a certain point. Both the object of desire and the pleasant sensations associated with it are impermanent. And as such, they're incapable of providing lasting satisfaction. But when we're in a strong state of craving, we don't see that. The, the Tibetans have an expression uh, dealing with this tendency to see only what we like or what we want around an object for which there's craving. And they call it putting feathers on the object. It's kind of evocative, isn't it? I mean, you kind of get the idea that there's the thing itself and then there's what the mind is doing in relationship where it's kind of like sprucing it up or you know, giving it uh, soft uh, lighting from above to you know, reduce the effect of wrinkles or whatever. So it's the overvaluing of things we find pleasant and want. The other thing about using uh, pleasant as the sole standard is it's a one-factor analysis, right? It misses the big picture. So what is wise or ethical is not necessarily aligned with what is pleasant. It's a narrow, pleasant is a narrow consideration, right? It gives one thing, which is the pleasant nature of things, a primary or exclusive importance. But our well-being is multidimensional. You know, there have, there's a classic study that um, Daniel Goleman talks about in his book, Emotional Intelligence, that sort of uh, illustrates the fact that the ability to defer gratification is really key to a lot of things. You know, they did an experiment with children of graduate students. And uh, these kids were, I want to say like five. They were young, you know, around that age. And they offered them basically a choice in marshmallow access. So they could either get 
like a certain number of marshmallows immediately if they wanted them, or if they could wait you know, for a certain amount of time while the adult went out of the room and did something else, then they could have more marshmallows, if they could wait, if they could defer. And some kids were able to defer, and some kids chose not to, right? Some, some kids were, take it now, get it now. Some kids were, well, I'll get more if I wait till later. And the interesting thing about the findings of this study were that they found that this particular marker, this capacity for um, delayed gratification, seemed to track uh, very strongly uh, over these kids' academic life, like up through college, I believe, is how far it was followed, with how well they did in school, even though the sample group was very similar in many ways. I mean, there weren't big intrinsic differences in their starting point. So that's the misses the big picture when you go for the gusto all the time. Another uh, shortcoming or problem is that of giving over power and choice. So when the craving and thirsting mind is involved with the unidirectional pursuit of pleasure, we're easily led in the direction of addiction with the further loss of perspective and freedom. Craving feeds on itself. That's kind of its nature. Because as states of increasing discomfort require larger and larger doses of something to mitigate the pain. And just a couple of brief stories here about this point. I remember uh, once being at a conference that was held in a casino in Reno. Okay. So on Saturday night, uh, you know, the buses and planes start coming to Reno and people get out and the gambling really starts to get hot and heavy, you know. So as it gets later and later in the evening, there's more and more gambling. And I can remember at night um, going by the tables and and seeing, you know, one table where uh, craps were being played and this uh, guy there with this, you know, great these great big stacks of like $100 chips, you know, making these big bets, and he was on a roll, you know, he was hot, and, you know, so he was betting, and then he was, you know, increasing the bet and letting the chips ride, and his stack was getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and, uh, you know, he was getting happier and happier and happier, and the table was getting louder and louder and louder and louder, and everybody was kind of flocking there, and then people were following his bets, you know, they were like trying to ride on his current of luck. So it got to be, you know, certain time, <laughs> and I called it a night, and got up the next morning, got up the next morning to have breakfast, and, you know, you have to kind of walk by the gaming area and most of these casinos to get to any place. That's all part of the setup. Walked by the gaming area, and the same guy was there, and his stack of chips, no more hundreds, he had like a few five fives left, you know, and his affect was like completely different. Right? And he was still betting, and you could see you know, what was going on with it. He was like chasing the bet, is the gambling term, right? He's chasing the bet, uh, trying to get it back, you know, trying to get it back by doing more of the same. 
So that's giving over uh, power and, ch- and choice. Then there's the issue of what we do to get and keep the pleasant, the whole struggle around it. And the, the Buddha had some interesting uh, things to say about this in his own inimitable way. And he says, uh, what, monks, is the danger in the case of sensual pleasures? And he says, uh, on account of the craft by which a clansman makes a living, whether checking, accounting, calculating, farming, trading, husbandry, archery, the royal service, or whatever it may be, he has to face cold and heat, is injured by contact with gadflies, mosquitoes, wind, sun, and creeping things. He risks death by hunger and thirst. This is a danger in the case of sensual pleasures. He's basically saying, you know, if you really want to pursue these kinds of things, these resources, you know, you're going to have to maybe do things that are very unpleasant, maybe even things that are dangerous, things that are potentially exhausting. And he says, and there's another thing. If no property comes to the clansman while he works and strives and makes an effort thus, he sorrows, grieves, and laments, he weeps and becomes distraught. My work is in vain, my effort is fruitless. This too is a danger in the case of sensual pleasures. In other words, upset due to failure of the enterprise, right? What happens when the, uh, when the business venture fails? He says, then, you know, when the clansman is working and strives and makes an effort, then he's got pain and grief in protecting it. He says, whoa, the guy starts thinking, how can I keep kings and thieves from taking my property? From, uh, how can I keep fire from burning it, from water sweeping it away, or unloved air stealing it? So then he's got to guard it and protect it, right? And if somebody comes along and takes it, and gets it away from him, then he's very distressed because he's lost it. He says, and then there's this other thing, which is, you know, when sensual pleasures are around, they can really stimulate a lot of fighting, a lot of quarreling, you know, kings with kings, uh, brahmins with brahmins, uh, mothers with sons, sons with mothers, brothers with brothers, sister with brother, friend with friend, you know, and they can actually get into quarrels and brawls and disputes, fighting over things, you know, the family will. He says, yeah, then the thing is with sensual pleasures, you can, men can take swords and shields and buckle on bows and quivers and charge into battle. Massed in double array with arrows and spears flying and swords flashing and get wounded and get their heads cut off. In other words, war. Or they can be called upon to lay siege to some place that has these sensual pleasures or this wealth. Again, with things being splashed like boiling liquids and that kind of thing. Or he says, you know, in order to pursue sense pleasures or wealth, there's a lot of crime. Men break into houses, plunder wealth, commit burglary, ambush highways, seduce others' wives, 
And then when the king catches them, they're in a lot of trouble. (laughs) There's torture upon them and imprisonment, death and suffering. And then he says, and then with sensual pleasures as the cause, if people aren't awake, they indulge in misconduct of body, speech, and mind, and having done so, after death are reborn in a state of misery. In other words, the karmic consequences of it. So, that's quite a bit of downside. And another thing. Shall we consider the social manifestations of greed and its implications? The insatiability that has an effect on the planet? The skewing of public and private values related to affluence and it being the sole measure of how uh, well the society is functioning, the commodification of uh, human labor, human trafficking, (laughs) colonialism, the kind of economic collapse that we've uh, seen in the West that was directly related to unrestricted pursuit of the very thing that the Buddha is talking about. The social implications for a culture that allows huge disparities between groups of people. What can happen to a culture where wealth is the only thing that matters and the only thing that's valued? And people who have wealth are the only people that count. You know, just like a person can wind up staying at a robotic level of functioning, you know, stimulus stimulus and response, or even decline when pursuing the pleasant as a sole direction, so can entire cultures. You know, there's... uh, a new thing now that uh, is being discussed in the world of marketing, and it's called neuromarketing. Has anybody heard of that? Oh, good. A new bit of information for you. So basically, the idea is to study the effect via you know, brain imagery of particular ways of pitching products uh, to people to see if uh, what particular approach in the marketing or the advertising or the uh, commercial uh, representation of products can ping the parts of the brain that are the most primal and are most likely to lead to action without the involvement of the higher centers of reason. Okay. So. You know, marketing people know about this human tendency, right? So it's got getting very scientific about how to manipulate that, you know? So if, if there's no resistance uh, or sophistication on the part of the, the individual, wow. Some people think that the direction uh, we're actually evolving 
is probably in the West is probably going to be in the direction of actually lower living standards, but higher levels of entertainment. So, now just to clarify some uh, other points to put this uh, whole discussion about pleasure and why you don't want to just follow the yellow brick road in regard to it. There are some other points that need to be made too, which is despite everything that I've just said about the dangers and the dysfunction of craving and greed, it would be uh, wrong to think that Buddhism has a problem with all desire. And in fact, some forms of desire are skillful, clearly skillful, depending on what other mental factors arise with them. For instance, the desire to awaken or the desire to be kind. And desire in and of itself, unless it resolves in craving, is also not problematic, right? It's just a fact. There's just a wanting there. It's when it goes into the that it becomes an issue. It's also incorrect to see that, to think that Buddhism is against pleasure or is puritanical. For instance, the pleasure to be found in jhanic states of concentration is clearly wholesome, or as the Buddha says, there is no fault in it. And in fact, to enter jhana, to enter these deeply concentrated states, the mind needs to open to pleasure, allowing it to grow and to be fully experienced. So you need to be able to open to pleasure in order to do certain meditation practices at a deep level. And in fact, this exploration of pleasure, as well as uh, the Vedana involved with the unpleasant and with neutral sensations, is is the set second of the four foundations of mindfulness that we explore within insight practice. So it's a key part of our practice to know and open to pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral sensation. And by bringing awareness to Vedana, to this this key point, we can awaken. We don't need to push pleasure away or the pleasant away. We need to know when it's present. right? So we're actually being encouraged to connect with it when it's there. And when we're in a mindful relationship to what's pleasant without craving, we actually experience all that pleasure can really offer. And it can be very well pleasant. And that's not a problem. We don't have to have an aversion to pleasant out of fear of craving, right? And that's sometimes the double loop that we tend to do because we hear pleasant is bad. It's not bad. What's being said is, craving is suffering, (laughs) not pleasant is bad. You see, those are two different communications. And it's important to know when pleasant sensations are present, because if we're not aware, we're easily carried off into states of greed, clinging, and thirsting. In a sense, the mind gets caught onto this monofocus and it begins to try to hold on to it and to keep it, and then things get sticky. 
That's when craving arises and we lose our center, our perspective, and we get tunnel vision. Right? So in that case, you've actually gone from a pleasant experience into a state of suffering in opposition to what's actually happening. And you start to see the clutching and clawing at things, trying to get them to stay or trying to make them to happen. So while pleasant is pleasant, craving is not. Craving, clinging, thirsting are unpleasant states. Well, the thought of the object of desire might be pleasant. The burning of greed is clearly suffering. And, you know, you probably know this, some of this distinction for yourself if you really think about it. I mean, we've all probably had the experience of having a love Jones for somebody, you know, where there was a lot of desire there, you know, a lot of, like, wanting to get the person or, you know, get with them or whatever. And the fantasy about doing that, getting that outcome, is very pleasant. But the actual experience of that, like, needing it, wanting it, you know, like obsessing about it, wanting to, you know, get it. How pleasant was that? Not very. So if craving is a a form of suffering and leads to further suffering when acted on, then of course the question comes up about how can craving be addressed? And it's basically a twofold answer. And the first is by seeing it, i.e., mindfulness, and letting go of the craving and the actions flowing from it. And, point two, by addressing the ignorance that gave rise to it. So, in order to let go of the craving, you know, we have a number of different tools. One is uh, renunciation generosity, uh, keeping the precepts, which keeps us from acting on things at least, and mindfulness. With insight practice, again, training us to open in the same way to all Vedana. Insight practice teaches us to relate to pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral in exactly the same way which is connect with it, allow it, know it without attachment or aversion. And when you think about how uh, the meditation instructions are given, you know, whether it's uh, in the morning or whether it's individually from uh, the teachers that you've been working with, they tell you to do, pretty much do the same thing whether you come in telling them it's pleasant or whether you're tell, telling them it's unpleasant. Or you tell them it's neutral, right? As long as you have the resources to meet something. If you come in and tell the teacher, you know, it's pleasant, they'll, set, they'll check and see if there's, you know, attachment or craving there. If there is, they'll point it out to you. If you come in and say, oh, the experience is unpleasant, they'll say, uh-huh. <laughs> right? They'll say, Yeah. Right? They won't say, get rid of anything. They won't say, take this one and, and uh, dump that one. Same instruction. You've been getting the same instruction about everything. 
So connect, allow, know all three forms of Vedana without attachment or aversion, and no craving as a hindrance when it arises. So if it's present, actually turn towards it and know it and explore it. And then the, the other point, the second point is addressing the ignorance or the delusion which really supports the strength of this factor in the mind, which is reflection on the limitations of sense desire and of pleasant as a soul standard and guide about how we should proceed and cultivation of wisdom through following uh, the other steps of the Eightfold Path. So this is all about letting go of extremes and seeing through the kind of false binary of uh, pleasant is good and uh, unpleasant is bad and neutral is not of interest. Right? Not allowing the mind to get fixated any place. Not allowing it to get stuck or into a state of resistance to reality as it flows. So just to close with uh, a final image. When I was working on this talk, I had an image come up in in my mind, as I often do when I uh, am thinking about something it sometimes just represents itself as a little story, even though we're always telling you not to follow the stories. I follow the stories when I'm working on my talks. But um, when I was thinking about developing the capacity to cut across the grain of uh, pleasure and pain, and I had two images come up, and one was of a boat that was just being pushed or pulled around by the current. You know, it's just out there, whatever wave is happening, it's just moving the boat wherever the wave happens to go. And then the second image that came up for me was a boat, but it was one that had a, a rudder and a centerboard and was able to set a course. Right? And this is the difference between having a mind that's driven by conditioning, some of which is strictly biological, and having a mind that is able to pick and choose its responses in a way that is in accord with values, deeply held values and integrity, and is in accord with the sense of what the direction direction uh, of freedom really is. So I suppose in thinking about this, and the the final question is uh, one to put to ourselves, which is, you know, do we really want to be free, or do we want to be led around by whatever we think will create sukha? Not that there's anything wrong with sukha or pleasant. But do we want to be led around by that? You know, there's a certain amount of uh, upstream voyaging that's a necessary part of this spiritual path. And um, coming to clarity around this uh, particular uh, point 
is important. It was important to the Buddha's own awakening and understanding. And it's important to us in our own practice to begin to see this for ourselves and um, thus be able to begin the process of finding uh, freedom from being driven and move into more of a capacity to choose wisely in our own interest. So having said that, let's just sit a couple minutes and let the words settle. May the merit of our practice be a cause and condition of our own awakening and that of all beings everywhere.